New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mendrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mendrinos. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Comedy Legacy Series. I'm your host, Jim Mendrinos, and we are going to be talking to an unbelievably side-splittingly funny comedian today, Mr. Tom Connor. You probably know Tom from America's Got Talent, where he was the first comic to get uh, as far as he got. And he has also been one of the top touring comics in America for the longest time. But Tom has got one of the most unique and original styles of performance and one of the most unique joke writing styles of anybody. So we're going to talk to him, talk to him about how he came up with it, how he grows it, how he cultivates it, and what's next as he steps beyond the uh, the 2020 Zoom world and then in, back into the real world, the stand-up comedy. But sit back, relax, and help us welcome Mr. Tom Cotter. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We have a really great guest uh, right now, Tom Cotter, who I think I've, I've known you since the earth cooled. Uh, oh, long time, man. Yeah. yeah, it has been a lot of years. Um, and we first met on the road, I think, before you before you really started working in earnest down here in the city. Uh, and then once you came to the city, you kind of took it by storm. And uh, the whole reason why I wanted to bring you on is because it, it's always been my opinion that you've got one of the most unique voices in all of comedy. There's no comic that sounds like you. Everything you do from the, the way you structure your material to the random asides are, are just so wonderful to watch and so unique to you. Was that something that came naturally for you or was that something you had to work and develop? Well, first of all, let me say it's an honor. Thank you very much for having me. I'm a big fan of yours, obviously, Mutual Admiration Society. And then you asked me to be a part of this. I was thrilled because, as you know, because of this pandemic, I have a lot of free time. So this is wonderful. I get to do something uh, career affiliated. And yep. to your point that you say it's so unique, I have to say that it really goes back to vaudeville. The style is it's kind of misdirection which if your uh, listeners know uh, Wendy Liebman or Brian Kiley or Don Gavin, any of those people do a similar kind of thing. Gavin, I think, does it the best because he does it with a thick Boston accent and an, and an attitude that none of us have. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's born out of ADD, and it's I hate lulls. So the structure generally is the setup, then the punchline. But with us the people I just mentioned and myself, it's set up, punchline, then tagline, tagline, tagline. You tag a joke to death, almost ad nauseum. And each tag takes it in a little bit of a different direction. It's a left turn or a curveball or the misdirection, as I mentioned before. I think that's the best way to kind of uh, to clarify it if, if you're not familiar with it. Yeah. Now, how much of that was when you started, that's your natural voice, for instance. When I started, I was a huge Freddie Prinze junkie. So I listened to uh, Freddie Prince all the time. And when I started, I kind of naturally sounded like him and had to evolve into my own into my own style. What about you? Who were the guys that you, you loved and how did that influence your style? Well, as you mentioned, that you and I met on the road because I started in the Boston area and you started down here, I believe. I don't know where exactly you started, but we, you know, that's how comics, we meet on the road and then we end up in one of LA or New York or Vegas or wherever we meet up. But yeah. um, where I started in Boston, it was a very intense 
time. You know, it was kind of kill or be killed in Boston. You had to kill. Greg Fitzsimmons always says, you learn how to kill in Boston. You don't just learn how to do comedy. And then the Boston guys would go to the Midwest and, uh, you know, we, we'd see these comics who were laid back and kind of took a long time to go over and get a drink in the middle of their set. And um, so I, I preferred the former. I preferred because that's kind of what I started. So Gavin was a huge influence on me, Don Gavin. And most comics, I think, uh, emulate somebody and uh, pretend to be that somebody for a little while until they find their own way. And I remember a year, like maybe 10 years ago going to L.A. to do some stuff, and I went to the Laugh Factory one night, and I watched literally a parade of Dane Cooks. Every single comic was trying to be Dane Cook. Yeah. The way they stalked the stage, the way they, they gesticulated, their, the way they intim, you know, their intimation of their voice, all those things were such clones of Dane Cook that I felt bad for Dane Cook because he had, but that it's imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So everyone imitates someone and then they find their own way. I was imitating a guy named uh, Kevin Knox, who is no longer with us out of Boston. God rest his soul. And Gavin is the one who influenced me the most and many other Boston comics. And uh, we've talked about it all the time. I, I hold him in such high regard and I wish I could do it as well as he does. Yeah. Now, um, Slightly different than Gavin because Gavin uh, definitely goes for a little bit more of a blue collar bent than you do, and you are not afraid to show the full depth and breadth of your intelligence on stage. You'll you'll whip out some references that it's seemingly you don't care if the audience gets. It's just if they miss it, another one will come around. Is that a stylistic choice, or that's just the way you you operate? Uh, I hope I don't do too much of that. I think Dennis Miller, God bless him, is a great comic, but I think he does too much of that. And I think he almost talks down to the audience. So I try not to, uh, you know, try not to be so, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, holier than thou, if you will, on stage. But uh, yeah, I like, uh, I I, I don't know, I I like it when people say to me, I missed a couple of your jokes, so I have to come back and see you again. Uh, Because then I know I have another ass in a seat if I'm coming back to that club. So uh, yeah, it's a, I, I just, I write what I love to write and I, uh, I just, I kind of enjoy that whole process. It's difficult. People say, do you, uh, have you ever hired writers? And I'm not above that. I would, but nobody writes that style. Uh, you know, I can't hire Wendy Liebman. She's higher up the food chain. I can't hire Kylie cause he already makes tons of money doing the, you know, Conan thing. So those are the people who kind of get my style. Uh, and other people have tried, and th- I thank them very much for trying, but it's just, it's a different uh, kind of style, and it's hard to write for. So, yes, I think everything's a conscious decision. Some of them are bad decisions, though, Jim. I've made some bad decisions over 30 years. Yeah, I think we all have. Uh, yeah. But you, obviously, you're doing something right, because you had a, a major takeoff uh, within the last Seven years America's Got Talent? Was it seven years ago? It was, uh, t- it was 2012, eight years ago now. Yeah, eight years but, ago. Yeah. Um, and that was, it, it was when the rest of America knew, found out what we comics knew, and that's how good you were. Um, Very take, kind. Take us through the process of shifting, because a lot of comics, and I see this, when they start out there in these, you know, 10, 15 seat rooms, and then they get to a full house on a Saturday night in a major comedy club, and they get gobsmacked and don't know how to handle it and you went from you know full comedy clubs to theaters which is another major raise what did you have to do to adjust your performance to the bigger venues 
Uh, well, for the show, it was it was not as difficult for me as it would be for other comics because, to your earlier point, I'm kind of a rapid fire guy, and on America's Got Talent, they only gave you 90 seconds. So, a guy like me, I can cram in many more jokes in that 90 seconds than my wife, who's also a comic. God bless her as a storyteller, and it takes her five minutes to say hello to the audience, whereas you don't have that luxury of time on these shows. So uh, adjusting it for the television show was not hard at all, just getting stuff past standards and practices. Adjusting it for theaters is a little different in that the acoustics, I mean, just this simple thing is like, when you do a comedy club, as we all do, they're in basements with low ceilings, everyone's on top of each other, and so the infectiousness or the contagiousness of the laughter is you know intense because it's all everyone's right on top of each other. Whereas in a theater, sometimes it takes time for the the punchline to get all the way to the people in the back and then work its way all the way up front again. So uh, it's a different. You kind of have to slow down and you got to adjust to your audience anyway. I do a lot of these uh, old places down in Florida. I do the Century Villages and the the condos. And those people, God bless them, are very smart people, but their synapses aren't firing quite as fast as they used to. So you have to slow it down. I'm not saying dumb it down, but you got to slow it down for those people because if you go too fast, then they're going to miss it. You're into the next joke before they even get the last one, and then it's no fun for anybody. Yeah. Now, what about other, other parts of performance, like movement and your physicality on stage? Was there an adjustment when you moved into theaters uh, or conscious thought to move more or move less? It's a much bigger stage. And so on America's Got Talent, for example, that's a ginormous stage. It's a huge stage. And the places I were, were, I did the Newark Performing Arts Center, huge theater stage. And then we did the um, uh, uh, Radio City, which is huge stage. And so you can't just stand there with the mic stand like you would in a comedy club, like the cellar or stand up New York, you're, you're in a little tiny stage and there's not a lot of room to move. You kind of have to use that whole stage. And so on AGT, I did some bells and whistles things to kind of use up that whole stage. Um, and that was a risk because I, you know, people said, don't change anything, just dance with what brung you and stick with what you're doing. And I said, I can't because, the guy who plays the earth harp has now he's added singers and dancers and a woman flying around on a wire above the stage. And I just can't come out and do be a monologist. You just can't, you have to do stuff. So yeah, when you have a bigger stage, you have to gesticulate more. You have to walk more, stalk the stage a little bit. You have to, uh, kind of uh, play to the, the balcony and then you got to play to the people on this side and this side so no one feels left out. And that's all different than working in a comedy club. So yeah, to, to your point, you, you adjust to your, your venue and if they're bigger venues, you have to make those adjustments. All right, let's, uh, let's roll it back to the beginning. Because okay. we all start out the same way. We start out in pitifully small clubs and horrible places and then we get a, a couple of opportunities at some of the uh, better rooms. I'm sure for you that was places like Nick's up in Boston and, yeah. and those kind of places. But um, then we hit the road. And the biggest mistake that I see comics making when they go from New York, New York to the road is they just abandon everything. They just, you know, oh, these people will never get it. And I found in my travels that funny translates everywhere. What adjustments did you have to make going from a huge city like Boston to when you finally hit the road? Well, I, uh, you know, I started, as you say, in Boston. So I started at Nick's Comedy Stop. I started at, uh, um, you know, uh, not the Faneuil Hall Room 
comedy right. connection, but the little one down the street, the yeah. little basement, uh, those are the little tiny rooms that I started working in. And by the time I was ready to go on the road, uh, to your point, com funny's funny. Funny, it plays well in Omaha as it plays in New York. I slow it down a little bit when I go to the middle of the country or because they just have a different uh, way of it. They're not into the New York and Boston kind of rapid fire in your face um, attitude and delivery. So you have to slow it down a little bit for those people as well. But again, not dumbing it down, just slowing it down, making it more maybe conversational than just a, you know, a monologue. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, I, I, my issue was, Jim, I, when I started, I was filthy. I had 15 minutes and it was filthy. And the headliners pulled myself and Mike McCarthy, who you might know, and mm -hmm. Joe Rogan with the three guys. We were like the three amigos out of Boston and we were filthy and none of the headliners wanted to work with us. And it wasn't because we were good. It was because we were filthy. I had 15 minutes of filth and they finally, they gave an intervention to me at one of the clubs. It may have been next. And a couple of guys came back and said, hey, you don't seem like a bad dude, but nobody wants to work with you because you soiled the room. And then we have to go up with our clean and clever, clever stuff and dig out of the hole that you just dug us. And if you clean it up, you're gonna help yourself. People wanna work with you. Then you can use country clubs, you can do cruise ships, you can do corporate gigs, things that you're never gonna do now. And to Joe Rogan's credit, he stuck to his guns and said, screw you guys, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And it's, clearly it's worked well in his favor. But Mike McCarthy and I both uh, read the writing on the wall and we cleaned it up a little bit. So my biggest adjustment was really cleaning up for uh, venues that preferred you to be more PG or even G sometimes to the R that I had started with and, and hard R, you know, NC 17 R. <laughs> Noted. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about content because when, when I watch you, you know, and you know, watch a bunch of videos that you've been doing lately because I haven't seen any comedy in seven weeks because of what we're going through. None of us have. None of us have. Um, and I see what you're doing. It, the references are still there. You're still talking about adult things. There's still references to sex. There's still references to all those things. It's just the execution is different. Is being clean just simply a function of cleaning up the language or is it a, a way you handle the content? I think the latter. And I'll tell you the case in point was last night, Carrie and I were in bed watching uh, Two and a Half Men. It was an old episode of Two and a Half Men. And we were flabbergasted with what they got away with on that show. And the way they did it was with double entendre, innuendo, and puns. You know, and that's how they get past standards and practices. And that's how uh, I kind of do my thing. My, my show has always been considered, for a cruise ship audience, an edgier show. But they let me get away with it because it is a double entendre. And if you happen to take it the dirty way, that's on you, not on me. And it is an innuendo, so I can always, I always have a bailout saying, well, you took it the wrong way. Uh, I clearly meant this when you took it as that. And so uh, for me, it's really how you structure the joke. And I, I, think, I think dirty is funny. I think it can be funny uh, as long as you're not pounding people over the head with it. And not, I'm sorry, my, I don't know why it keeps going off on, on the computer when that happens. Don't even worry uh, about it. Uh, so my... My thing is I would do, uh, I'd say I'm dirty or, or I'm not dirty, but I'm, uh, I'm risque and maybe edgier, but I get away with it more because I'm, uh, I'm using these tools, the double entendre, the misdirection, all those things. 
right, so let's talk about the process of creation because there's a whole lot of comics and and whenever I meet a young and one of the big things is how do you write? So, and we all write differently. And I think that that just boggles the mind of most people that are in comedy that your process would be different than mine. So could you talk us through your process? I want to let you know that Johnny Lampert is the one who just called me three <laughs> times in a row and I keep texting, sorry, I can't talk right now. And he keeps calling and it's that, not an emergency. I can guarantee you that. So but uh, that's Johnny. he's the bane of my existence. So uh, yeah, my thing is um, when I was, when I was a young guy, uh, he's killing me. Hold on. Can I do this? Yeah, just, come on. Well, I can't now because he's not here. Hey. Uh, <laughs> Johnny, I'm, in, I'm doing a Zoom thing. i got to call you back. Bye. Uh, so, you bought yourself about 10 minutes. Thanks, man. I, I this is, I, I pull over here. I'm on my desk. It's these. I have a million of these books that I, you know, that we all, all comics yeah. have these. And you write stuff down, there's billions of them. And yeah. when I was starting off, I always carried around a pad. It was a maxi pad. Hello, Tom Cotter. I'll be here all week. I would carry around a pad and I would, I was always terrified that I was going to, because I forget things, you know, that I was going to miss something and it would be rude, but I'd be in the middle of a conversation with someone and I would say, wait a minute. And I open up a book and start writing something down and they'd be like, wait a minute, we were in the middle of a conversation. How rude is that? But I was so afraid that I would miss that because yeah. I would say to myself, wow, what were we howling about last Saturday night? I can't remember. So I got so paranoid about that. I wrote everything down, hoping that that one little acorn would become the mighty oak tree of a comedy bit. But oftentimes it was just an acorn that was scurried away by a squirrel and eaten. But, but you got to write it down or you don't have it. So I was always writing stuff down and then going through it later, revisiting it later, even if I thought it was um, dead, I would still come back to it and try to put it on life support and see if it still was a good premise and could become a comedy bit. And now I do that all with the iPhone. I have to, you know, I now dictate into my phone. But again, it's disconcerting to people if you're in the middle of a conversation with yeah. four or five people and you say, wait a minute. And Carrie and I, you know, I'm married to a comic and Carrie and I will be in a conversation and someone will say something hysterical that's not in the industry. And I'll say, uh, I hosey that. Or Carrie will say, that's mine. And so we have to quickly jump on it before the other person gets it. And if I steal it, if it's from her side of the family, she's outraged that I took a joke <laughs> that came from her brother and vice versa. So um, I hope I answered your question. I long-winded. Yeah, no, this, this is what this whole podcast is about. Have you not heard me, Tom? I'm nothing if not long-winded. Um, <laughs> now, do you write every day? Do you write only when inspiration hits? Uh, I wish I could say, I wish I was disciplined to say that I write every day, but I, uh, I'm always tinkering, but I, I wouldn't say I'm writing, you know, a lot of it's just organizing because I have the notes that are in the phone. Then I have the notes that are in my laptop. Then I have the notes that are in the book and you have to have the discipline to sit down. And when you're ADD, it's not easy, but you have to sit down and really discipline yourself to take the little bits from the different topics and try to formulate them into something that hopefully it will become comedy gold. Um, so it's a lot more organiza organization and organizing stuff more than it is just having epiphanies and writing. And Kerry writes on stage. I know comics who write on stage yeah. in the middle of their act. I've never, I don't think I've ever, ever done that. Uh, it's always premeditated, if you will. 
I've come up with a line or two on stage, but that those comics that consistently write on stage, I just yeah. sit back and watch them and I go, I, I, I don't have the bravery to do that. I don't, I don't have the ability to do that. I don't think I've ever done that. I've never said something that was so genius that I said, hey, write that down. Or I don't want to forget that uh, from stage. And usually you're catching lightning in a bottle when that happens. It just yeah. happens to be a perfect situation between you and someone in the audience or something. And you're never going to recapture that moment, I think. Yeah, but when you look at the list of comics that create almost exclusively on stage, it just boggles the mind. You know, somebody like a Robert Klein who says that he write, does almost all of his writing on stage. And they're like, really? How do you do that? And he's got seven HBO specials, so I yield. Yeah. No, I mean, whatever he's doing is working for him. Yeah, but then you have the, the people that are on our, our side of the coin, like uh, George Carlin, who never did anything unless he put it in a notebook first. So Yeah, he was a complete student. And a guy I really, when I started, it was him and Pryor with the two albums that I snuck yeah. into my home to listen to, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, mine was Carlin and Freddie Prinze. And I, no. I came to Pryor later. I actually came to Pryor when I became a stand-up, which was really weird to have people reference Pryor like 8,000 times and me going, who are you talking about? Really? And then having to find, yeah. But you also got to remember, I started stand-up when I was 19. So oh, wow. I was yeah. not incredibly worldly. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the, the revision process. Uh, because you and I have the advantage of time. And some of our bits are probably a lot older than we would like to admit. How often do you go back and revisit the really old stuff and rewrite the really old stuff? And at what point do you just give up and say, that's retired? I think we, well, some stuff just has a, a specific shelf life. And, it, and once it's expired, it's expired. I, I rarely pull out the Falkland Islands war jokes anymore. Those don't seem to do it. Yeah. But when you, but you know, can I make that about uh, the Afghan war? No, I, I, it turns out I couldn't, but I try. I always try to resurrect stuff from the past. And what amazes me is I'll find an old tape, uh, videotape or audio tape, even back to cassettes. And sometimes you stumble on a, a bit and you're like, wow, I forgot about that bit. And yeah. I've forgotten about so many of my bits that I resurrect them then and, and see if I can apply them to today's norms, you know. And um, that's, that's worked sometimes, but more often than not, I'm, I realize why it was in the mothballs and why it was retired and I keep it where it was. All right. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, writing for markets because your markets have definitely changed in the last eight years. You know, you went from clubs to theaters. Um, you're doing a, a lot more on television than, than a, a lot of other comics are. Do you write for the markets you're in now? Do you write for the markets that you're going to? Well, I did, um, I did the Huckabee show, which is uh, on, uh, it, he's, you know, the former governor of Arkansas. And it's on TV and I don't know what it is. It's some old Christian network that he's on. And now he's having stand-ups on. He's, for the last couple of years, he's been having stand-ups. So for that market, I wore literally flag pants. I had red, white, and blue pants. I wore a blue blazer, white shirt, red tie. And I clearly had to be, you know, when you're always clean when you do TV. But for that audience, I had to be squeaky clean. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, you, you, you kind of have to play to that market and whatever market you're in. And I made sure that I didn't do anything that was too over the top, even within innuendo and double entendre. I was trying to be as squeaky clean as possible. And the problem with that was, though, at the end of the show, he uh, held up my book. My book is back here. And he said, it was right before Father's Day last year. And he said, you should do, you should buy this book. 
And I said, no, they shouldn't. They should not buy the book. The book is filthy. And he told them to buy it. And some of the, his listeners are Christians, born-again Christians, bought the book and then sent me nasty emails sending, <laughs> saying, this is filthy. You were so clean on TV. And I read the book. And some woman literally told me she tore the pages out of the book one at a time. I was like, oh, thanks for sharing that with me. But wow. yeah. So you play to your audience. You play to a bigger room. You play to a certain demographic. When you're in Florida, you're playing to elderly white people. That's a different audience than working at a college where they want to hear about the drunken roommate and they have no interest in hearing about being married. So, you know, you just you tailor your act. And you and I, we've been at this for th over three decades. So we, uh, we have an arsenal from which to pull. And then you go into that uh, venue and pull from that arsenal what you think will strike those people well. And sometimes you make a mistake and pick the wrong bit or the wrong material. But more often than not, if you've been at it for a while, you know what you're going to get away with. Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit about the book. What was the experience like writing it? What made you decide to write the book? And how did the writing of the book differ from the writing of your stand-up? The writing of the book is not that it's my stand-up. It's, yeah. it's little lines. It's one-liners. It's a bunch of one-liners. It's all about being a parent, this one. Mm -hmm. uh, Carrie came out with her book at about the same time. My wife, hers is called Mean Mommy. Mine's called Bad Dad. And we just thought, what the hell? We, you know, we have all these lines in these notebooks, these voluminous notebooks I have. Uh, and I said, wait, well, that material is just laying there. Some material is better read than spoken. And as you know, and some things are, are better spoken than read. And so those, that's a compilation of stuff that I think reads better than, uh, than uh, is del better delivered uh, spoken. You know, I just think yeah. it, it's better to see it than to hear it. And so that's what that is. And it was the inspiration of that was Jack Handy from, um, Saturday Night Live used to do those little interstitials uh, mm -hmm. called Deeper Thoughts. And so it's just, it's little blurb one-liners that start off very kind and, and happy and then take a horribly dark turn towards the end. All right, so let's also talk about um, the stuff you do with Carrie, because you guys do a lot of shows together. You guys do uh, a lot of family engagements together and geared towards theaters. How much of that is conscious? How much of that just happened over time because you guys have been together forever as well. Yeah, there aren't that many comedy couples left. Uh, you know, and people get nostalgic for the Burns and Allen and God rest his soul. Jerry Stiller left us last week, but Stiller yeah. and Mira were great. And uh, uh, who else? Nichols and May. Uh, those, those are even Lucy and Desi. So people get nostalgic for that. And they, they whenever Carrie and I work someplace and go on one after the other, someone will say to us, do you guys ever do that together? We'd love to see that together. Will you come back next year and do it together? Because they just, they want, especially the older Catskills, Florida, yeah. they get nostalgic for it. So we were kind of pushed into it. And to my earlier point, it's difficult to merge our styles because she is this long storyteller and it's a very funny story with a great payoff at the end. And I'm more the ADD rapid fire one-liner guy with a lot of taglines. So merging those two styles is not easy. And traditionally, with a comedy team, you have a straight person, you have, a, you know, the zany, funny guy, uh, like, uh, let's say, uh, the Smothers Brothers, you know, Dickie always sets up Tommy. Uh, for us, Carrie and I both want to be the zany person. So you have to work that out as well. And I know Al Ducharme and Bernadette Pauly tried a little bit, and they have that same struggle. And I think Rich Voss and Bonnie, because, are again, there aren't many other, we're an endangered species. So... Uh, when people ask us to do it, we will definitely do it. It's, uh, it's more taxing than our regular act, just because we, 
we don't have it rehearsed as much as we've done. So we have to do a little rehearsal before we do one of those things and make sure we're both on the same page. And we bail each other out, which is often funnier than the actual material. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It makes you get up on your toes a little bit and you're out of your comfort zone. And it's, uh, it's kind of fun to do that because you, you, someone else is relying on you rather than yeah. just relying on yourself. Now, do you do those shows? Are you guys writing the material together? Or are you writing some bits and she's writing some bits? We've generally pulled on both sides. Like we'll take a line out of her stand-up and a line out of my stand-up and see if they can work back-to-back. -back. Uh, we um, we sometimes, will, uh, sometimes we'll write specifically just for the two of us, but generally it's stuff that she's got in a notebook and I've got in a notebook that she wrote for herself, I wrote for myself, and then we merge it together. All right. So <clears throat> in all the years you've been performing, what are some of the things you've learned about, about the business of comedy that you uh, wish you would have I think your internet's about? breaking up just a bit. Can you start that again? Oh yeah, sure. Let's, let me do this to see if this. I heard in all the years you've been performing, that was the yeah. last I heard. All right, so hopefully this is better. I just changed the setting. Um, in all the years you've been performing, what business side of comedy do you wish you knew then that you know now? Now I would say it's the internet. I mean, the, uh, the, the social media thing, I, I'm trying to learn on the fly and I'm going along with it, but I'm certainly not a black belt. And I know there are comics that Carrie and I talk about all the time. There, there are some really spectacular comedians like Steve Sweeney and Gavin and those guys, the old school guys out of Boston who just recently got color headshots. You know, I mean, they had black and white headshots. They had no website. Yeah. They had no social media presence because they walked on water up in Boston and they didn't need it. And that they just didn't, you know, people have been saying, hey, catch up to the 21st century. And they were like, poo poo that and say, no, I don't need to do that. And then the other side of that coin is there are some comics who are really good at social media that I, I don't, I just don't get their act. I mean, I really don't. Uh, but they're putting asses in seats and geniuses that I think old school guys who don't play that game uh, aren't filling rooms. So you really, it's a necessary evil now to be able to play the social media thing. And I wish I, I'm learning on the fly to this day. You know, the whole Zoom thing is kind of a new experience for me. And uh, now TikTok is something we have to do. And before that it was Instagram and before that it was Facebook and all the way back to MySpace. And I, you know, we all saw what Dane Cook did with MySpace and we all were envious. And, and so I'm, I'm trying to get better at that aspect of it, which I guess you could put under the, the banner of marketing. I'm, I wish I was a better marketer, but I think we're supposed to tell jokes. We're supposed to be the creative people. And then you're supposed to have a manager or an agent or someone that's supposed to do the other end of it, but you now it's kind of every every man for himself or every woman for herself. You have to be a jack of all trades. You have to market yourself, you have to promote yourself, and you have to bring the funny. It does seem to me that the onus has gotten on us to do all the jobs. Yeah. When I started, it was just show up, be funny, you know, and, and they even paid airfare way back in those days. Yeah. Uh, and now it's in addition to all the other jobs I have to do on stage, well, how many people can you bring in the audience? You know, it, it, it's somehow in the last five years, the industry turned into us all doing bringer shows in one way or another. Yeah. So it, now let's talk about, because you, you're in, in some really great uh, venues, but 
they're eclectic venues. You talked about cruise ships. You talked about, you know, going down to the condor circuit. You talked about, you know, clubs and you talked about theaters. Those are four very different, you know, styles of venues. And do you need time in between them? Are you able to go from one to another seamlessly? Is it, is it a mindset that you have to go into? For instance, in the senior centers, I've got, you, you mentioned having to slow down a lot. Does mm -hmm. that then bleed into your next show when you're in a theater? Or are you able to compartmentalize? I think I've been at it long enough that I can kind of switch gears when I have to. Mm -hmm. uh, but they are, I always say it's seeds. It's all seeds. It's, uh, it's corporate, college, cruise ship, casino, comedy club. And then you might have country clubs at the bottom end of that. And so they are different venues. And you can obviously be a little bluer in a comedy club than you can on a cruise ship. And now corporates are bastions of political correctness where you have to worry about every syllable you utter, whereas you, we didn't 10 years ago. You can be a little edgier. So you have to uh, take all that into account. And you kind of have to put your uh, artistry on the back burner if you want to pay your bills and say, all right, I love this joke, but it's not appropriate for this audience. And as much as I love this joke and I want to use my artistic integrity and do what I want to do, I also want to be asked back and I want to get paid, and I don't want people besmirching me saying that I was sexist or racist or anything else. So you make sure that you're, uh, you're playing to that audience again and making sure that there's uh, utilitarian. You please the maximum amount of people uh, with the minimum amount of collateral damage, I think. That's kind of where I am. All right, now you're doing longer sets, and obviously, you know, I look at your energy in a set, and they're like, oh my God, I would, I would need a shower and a nap if I had to do 45 minutes at your energy level. Um, how do you do that? How do you keep the energy up? I'm, obviously, there are times where you, you don't have the energy. Obviously, there are times where you probably really don't want to perform. How do you get there and psych yourself up to do that for 45 minutes to an hour, especially when it's a theater show or a country club show and you're the only act? It's not like you get somebody opening for you. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the show must go on. That's always something, you know, no matter, we're all entertainers. You've done this. I've gone on with a horrible toothache. I've gone on with gas pains. You know, I've gone on with a horrible headache. You got to put on the smile, pretend it's not there. And years ago, a guy named Dick Doherty, uh, who booked a bunch of rooms up in Boston, said to me one night, I, he hired me to open for him at a gig up in Vermont. And uh, I had laryngitis. I mean, I could barely talk. And he said, don't worry about it. Don't cancel on me. Come with me. I'm telling you, your adrenaline is going to kick in right before the show and you're going to be fine. And to his credit, that absolutely happened. I was, I had, I was so hoarse. I could, you could barely hear me. And about 20 minutes before the show, the adrenaline kicked in. I got through the set. It wasn't the greatest set ever. And I did struggle a little bit. And then after the set, I had zero voice. It went back much worse than it was before the show. But your adrenaline kicks in and you get through the show. Um, so, yeah, sometimes you don't want to do the hour. And at my pace, you're right. It is, it's monotonous. It really gets monotonous. You can't do that rapid fire thing. It gets, you, you know, the audience starts looking for the misdirection about 20 minutes into my act. They realize there's a style there and they say, okay, what's the left turn he's going to come up with here? And I used to feel that way watching Stephen Wright, who I think is a genius. But whenever he'd start a joke, I'd always be like, oh, God, where is he going to take this? And so you're starting to try to uh, analyze it and kind of uh, figure it out. It's a puzzle. 
And I don't want people doing that with my act. I would just want them sitting there and laughing. So doing an hour of misdirection, rapid fire, one-liner kind of stuff can get a little monotonous. And I've often thought of, you know, uh, adding a ventriloquist puppet uh, to my act for 10 minutes. Or I play guitar, bringing a guitar out and playing a song parody or doing something a little different. I've never done it but I've always thought about doing it because I do tinker with these things because my act does get monotonous after an hour. But, you know, so far, no one started throwing things at the end. I, you can feel them getting tired, though, especially the older audiences in Florida, you know, when they have the oxygen mask on, which is already stifling their laughter, and they're old. And they, you know, they can't clap because they have arthritis, and they're not going to stand for you because of their hips. And so they're old, and to put up with my act, for an hour of that rapid fire misdirection at the end they're like enough already you know so you got to be careful of that but I'm, i haven't changed it yet yeah, nor should you it's, it's actually well, making you money um do you still love performing yes i'm that's why i'm devastated about this corona thing i mean i i haven't worked march 15th was my last gig and it was down in florida and since then, everything else has been Zoom. I've done a bunch of Zooms. I'm doing one again tomorrow night. I did one this morning. Uh, and they're okay, but you just don't get that same interaction. Yeah, you know, they, they unmute 10 people so you can hear some laughter. Well, you're also hearing their dog bark and the baby cry and then ordering pizza and stuff like that. It's different than being in a comedy club. And that's what I've always done. And Carrie and I always say, you know, what are we going to do when we're – getting ready to retire. When are we going to retire? We're not going to retire. The comics never retire. Go to the Friars Club anytime you want and see these guys in their late hundreds still shuffling up to the podium to tell jokes when they already have a World War II pension. They have a pension from sorry, residuals from show they were on in the 50s, but they're just hams. No one wants to quit. George Burns was hired when he was 100. So we'll just keep doing it. Yeah, the, the Larry Storch effect. Yeah, yeah exactly. Good yeah. case point. Yeah. So when I started, I kind of, you know, floundered and learned hitting open mics the same way everyone else does. But I had a lot of comics that came up to me and were really kind and really sat down and taught me. People like Barry Berry. I don't know if oh, you remember him from yeah. when he first came to New York. Um, uh, Richard Morris. You know, some guys that saw some potential in me as a writer and actually showed me a bit of crowd. Who are the guys that inf helped you? Who are the veteran comics that reached back and kind of gave you pointers and advice and showed you the right way to do things. Well, as I mentioned before, I really, it was an intervention when they pulled myself, McCarthy and Rogan aside and said, you guys are just killing your own careers. And they were right. And at the time I wanted to take the Rogan stance and say, screw you. This is my art form. I'll do it the way I want to do it. I grew up watching Pryor, Richard Pryor. He was filthy. He's famous. Uh, but they were right. And so I'm glad they imparted their wisdom upon me. And I try to do that without being condescending or holier than thou to younger comics myself, because I remember how important and influential those words were. Charlie Hall, I, st I really started in Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, that's where I grew up. And then after a short time in Providence, you realize I got to get the hell out of Providence. You either go an hour north to Boston or three hours south to New York. And I chose the former and then made it to New York, but I was in Boston for six years and that's really where I kind of got going. But Charlie Hall said the same thing to me. He said, you're too dirty because I thought you had to be dirty. And he said, uh, you know, you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot and it's really going to limit you if you really want to make this a career. If you want to make this a hobby, have at it. Be as dirty as you want. But if you want to make this a career, you're 
limiting yourself by being as dirty as you are. And guys like um, Kevin Knox, who I mentioned before, was a big influence on me and such a good dude to me and hired me to open for him all the time. And that downtime, you know, you do half an hour on stage before the guy, but the downtime within the car together and the hotel, having meals together, hearing old war stories and their experiences, that is invaluable. I mean, that is something you, you, you know, not only does it help you, but you treasure those memories of that time. You bonded with these, these guys who had been at it longer than you and that you look up to. So Noxie, uh, Al Ducharme was out of Rhode Island and uh, I really looked up to him back then. Not anymore. I mean, he's horrible, but I no, love Al. He's one of my best friends, obviously. Um, but uh, and then looking up to the Gavins, the Sweeney's, the Kenny Rogersons, those guys in Boston were all really good. And they they tortured us. There was definitely a pledge program, you know, in uh, in Boston. There was definitely a hazing situation where they would come up to you before your show, right before you're supposed to go on stage and say, dude, you got to change your shirt. What? You got to change your shirt. You can't go on stage with that shirt. They're going to boo you. And then you're thinking, oh my God, this guy knows what he's talking about. I'm an idiot. I'm brand new open micer. I got to go change my shirt. <laughs> and at the end of the set, they're laughing at you because you fell for it. And I loved all that stuff. I really did. So yeah, I, I, I still look up to those guys, obviously, in a different way now. But I, I value the times that they uh, gave me their words of wisdom when I was starting out. All right. And if you were going to uh, direct a young comic to people they should watch to learn the craft? Who are some of the masters in your eyes that a young comic should study? Well, they may already know of people like Dave Attell, I think is hysterical. Um, I, uh, Brian, Brian Regan is, uh, you know, pound for pound, probably the best guy working right now. Yeah. Um, and it's such a good dude offstage. So I would say watch those guys. Gaffigan has his finger on the pulse right now. Um, but I would give them a wide, a wide variety. I, the Stephen Wright is someone I tell everyone to watch just because they should watch him. Kylie is another one that I think is, you know, had he not chosen to be a writer all these years, I think he'd be higher up the food chain. Everybody adores him and he's so well respected. Uh, uh, and then you want to mix in someone like Jonathan Katz who gets up there with a guitar and does some silly stuff. And yeah. uh, just so you can see the wide range of, of different uh, comics and different ways they deliver their stuff. And then I'd go way back to the guys who influenced me, which were Carlin and Pryor. All right. So what is uh, Perfect World post-COVID? What is uh, next for you? What are you most looking forward to doing career-wise? This will be cliche, uh, but I just want to get back on a real stage in front of a real audience and perform comedy. Now they're talking about doing drive-in theater shows for comics where yeah. people stay in their cars, I'm hearing that, and these Zoom shows are great, thank God, but if they pay you literally 10% of what you used to get paid. And yeah. it's nice that you don't have to leave your house, but it's just, again, I'm not belaboring the point, but it's just not the same. Um, so I really want to get back out there and work. Uh, Carrie and I are, uh, you know, uh, hashing around some little projects that people are talking to us about, doing stuff together which I like working with my wife, honest to God, I really do. A lot of guys are like, I, gotta get, I go to work to get away from my wife, but uh, Carrie's pretty easy to work with and I, I, I adore our time together. So um, I like doing that. Um, yeah, and other than that, I just, I'm on the road and I, I'd love to do an hour special. We're talking to some people about that, uh, but you know, that's all on hold right now because everything's on hold yeah. and then we'll see what happens. And then final thought, and then I'll leave you, uh, I'll leave you go. But you've got kids. 
have they have they seen the act mm -hmm. and do they like it do they understand it you know uh, up until america's got talent which was eight years ago they thought i was a rodeo clown you know when i would leave to go i was a road warrior jim you know and so oh, yeah. i would i was on cruise ships all the time and so that was a week at a time and i would pack the night before because it was always an ungodly early morning flight and i would put my bags by the door and this is when my twins were like two years old and they would see the bag by the door and they'd make it you know they they put it together and say oh my god dad's leaving for a week and they would sit on the bag and cry and freak out and uh so i love being home more now but until then they didn't know what i did they just knew i left but h-e-t got them to really not only they were on every almost every episode you know from the quarterfinals on and so uh they really dug that experience and now that my twins are 17 my young my my twins are wow. 17 now i feel they, very old i know me too uh that we're allowing them to come with us. They tag along with us to the strip sometimes, stand up New York to the cellar, Gotham. So we let them come with us because they're old enough. My youngest uh, is 12. He sees a lot of this stuff online and you can't hide from that. All of his friends follow me on Instagram and everything and I can't yeah. block them all. So uh, we've had a couple of come to Jesus conversations where they've stumbled on something, a podcast I did or something where I said something hardly inappropriate. And they say, you got a furry set of balls telling me I can't swear. And I heard you on this thing. So, uh, but uh, I think that all three of them really could uh, do comedy if they wanted to. All three of them have a different kind of perspective, but it's genetic. Both mom and dad are comics. But we always say to them, because we want them to have a happy life, start it off as a, a hobby. And if you want to let it morph into something more later on down the road, God bless you. But until you get, you know, your college education and start a career that has health insurance and dental insurance and a 401k, then you can go into it as a hobby and see where it takes you. But we, uh, we want them to have a stable life first. All right. And if someone's looking to find you on social media or a website, where do you want them to go to find you? Um, well, pretty easy on Instagram and Twitter. It's at Tom Cotter Comics, C-O-M-I-C. And uh, I'm easy to find on Facebook and, um, and TikTok and the other ones. It's pretty easy to find. There's not that many Cotters. There's Wayne Cotter and me. So and you're not going to confuse us. He's tall, Jewish, and funny, and I'm not. So uh, uh, easy to find me, and people could check out my website, which is TomCotter.com, oddly enough. Well, great. Thanks so much for the conversation, and we will talk to you again soon. So Tom's experience is not different than a lot of comics. Veteran performers stepping in to help him out when he was at a crossroads, life on the road, learning how to adjust to different types of venues. But in, in all of these stories, there seems to be a, a wonderful commonality. And that is the experience of stand-up is ever-changing, ever-growing. What you learned yesterday will fuel what you need to know tomorrow. That's why it's important for us to study all of the ones that came before us, learn as much as we can from these people, and infuse that into our own art. Well, this has been a great, great episode of the Comedy Legacy Series. We've got another great guest for you guys next week. Come on back then. And until then, I'm Jim Andrinos. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Worldwide Productions.